we read the word of the Lord this morning as we find it in the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading Revelation chapter 1 at verse 9 through chapter 2 verse 7. And we'll focus this morning especially on the words of chapter 2, the letter of Christ to the church in Ephesus, verses 1 through 7. It's on page 1407 in the Pew Bibles. Revelation 1, beginning at verse 9. Let us listen to this word which the Lord speaks to us. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And now follows our Lord's first letter to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of his word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have the great privilege this morning of coming to you like a mailman, a courier, with a letter. And guess what? It has the address to the church, Covenant United Reformed Church, in Pella, Iowa, in this year of my reign, 2020. And you say to me, well, Pastor, it says to the church of to the angel of the church in Ephesus, which was an ancient city in Asia Minor on the Mediterranean Sea. I don't see anything about Covenant United Reformed Church as the addressee of this particular letter. Well, it's not accidental, congregation, that we're told at the outset of the book, I didn't read that section, blessed, perfectly happy are all those in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until the day of his coming, who read not only the words of this book, but put them into practice. And not only that, there are seven churches that John, as he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos, the Apostle John is instructed in the Spirit to send this letter to them. Why seven? Boys and girls, you know, right? Not accidental, not 11, not 14. Why seven? You think there were less, no more than seven churches in Asia Minor late in the first century when the book of Revelation was given under inspiration to the Apostle John? No, there were churches uh, in all kinds of places, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Why seven? Well, in the book of Revelation, as you know, numbers mean something. Seven represents the whole. So these are real churches with real issues to which Christ speaks with great concreteness. He doesn't preach to the choir. He talks to them in their particular need and circumstance. He doesn't go over their heads. But he represents these churches as themselves representative. They are typical of in this time between the times of Christ having come and Christ yet to come, what is true of the church throughout all the world and the word that he speaks in this letter. By the way, we're not used to receiving letters, are we? The best we get is a tweet or someone who sends us an email unsolicited without even saying, Dear so-and-so. I don't know if they teach in school any longer. I can remember as a a little elementary student, we even had a class in how to write a letter. Put the date on there and the address of the recipient, and then you use the word dear. And it's so ingrained in me, I don't care who I'm talking to, they are dear to me when I send them a letter. And I don't forget a closing salutation. Cordially yours in Christ. There are proper ways of speaking. Our culture doesn't know much about that, I'm afraid. I'm not arguing for written letters rather than letters sent by modern media. A good letter can be sent by a whole variety of means, but 
let's be clear about something. Christ took the trouble to pen this letter by His Spirit and send it to churches for the purpose that they would give it their attention. And that's why it's particularly important to notice how much trouble John goes to tell us who authored this letter. I don't know about you, but I get a lot of junk mail. More junk mail than anything else. The mailbox on Saturday is pretty slim. And a lot of the stuff I get online, too. I don't know this person. They don't know me. And they could care less about what I'm up to. Not so this letter. This is a very particular letter. I can say to you in the name of the author of the letter that I bring to you this morning, that if you pay it no attention, never mind Venema, I'm only a courier. I'm carrying a letter. I didn't write it. So don't listen to me. Pay attention to what Christ has taken the trouble to send to you and to announce that if you receive it in the way that it was intended, you will be confident and I can tell you, you will enjoy blessing. So I would like us to look at the letter this morning and do so under four heads. The first thing is, let's spend a little time reminding ourselves who wrote it. That makes all the difference, as I've already suggested. The author of the letter. Then notice, the author of this letter, he knows you from the inside out. He knows exactly what's going on in this church and in all of his churches. He commends them for certain things. He starts on a positive note, a congratulatory, commending note for the good things that he sees and witnesses in the life of the congregation in Ephesus, the commendation. Then he turns, as is often the case, there's only one letter that has nothing but commendation. There's another that has nothing but condemnation. Our Lord was not like these false prophets who come and whitewash sepulchers. He didn't patch up like some of the Old Testament prophets the cracks in the wall of the temple. He told it like it is. He didn't cater to itching ears. He was very clear both in condemnation, but in this case also a word of rebuke, condemnation. And then we'll end noticing not the author, the commendation, or the condemnation, or criticism, but a precious promise with which the letter concludes. First of all, the author, Paul, the Apostle John, who was, as he tells the recipients of this book, this mysterious book of Revelation, suffering for the name of Jesus and for the word of the testimony on... He was an exile. The little rocky atoll in the Mediterranean, ten miles long and five miles wide, and he probably spent his days quarrying, digging rocks with little, if anything, to show for it. And it was for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells you that he was in the Spirit, note well, on this day, the first of the week, Particularly good day to receive the letter. The same day upon which it was written. 
He was in the Spirit, and there appeared to him the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and he has an image, or a vision rather, he sees a vision of the Lord in all of his glory. And a lot of the language is drawn out of the Old Testament Scripture. For example, the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is actually the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come, who rules and has dominion over the whole of the creation, whose hair is white as wool, with eyes that blaze like fire. That's the true and the living God. But in this use of the prophecy of Daniel, John tells us it was the risen, ascended, seated at the Father's right hand, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man, out of whose mouth comes a double-edged sword whom to see in all of his majesty was so overwhelming that what was John's initial response? He tells us. He fell upon his face as though dead in fear and in awe. That's an odd experience for 21st century Christians to hear. We don't very often see Jesus in the fullness, having been crucified in weakness. He was dead, but now made alive in the Spirit forevermore, having the keys of death and of Hades, being, as it says earlier in the chapter, the first and the last, His voice, when it sounds, he draws upon imagery in the prophecy of Ezekiel. It's like the sound of mighty rushing waters. And have you ever been to the Niagara Falls and stood at the edge and looked down? It's a a fairly awe-inspiring sort of thing. It sort of repulses and draws you in at the same time. You hear the thunder and the roar. You can even feel under your feet the earth itself, granite, rocking. Do you ever think of the voice of the Lord as it sounds forth from the throne room, even in this beautiful letter that we consider this morning, in those sorts of terms? And not only that, we're told that this is a letter that is is written to the angel of the church of Ephesus because we've been told in chapter 1 that this mighty one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the one who rules all history and brings it to his desired end, he has every one of the angels, the stars, In the firm grip of his hand, and they are the angels, and the word angel in Scripture has as its basic meaning the messenger, the one who carries from the throne room God's word and conveys it, communicates it to his people. Some commentators think that the angel of the churches are the pastors, 
I'm not sure about that. I do know this. It's the assignment of the pastors to receive this angelic, Christ-authored word and pass it on to the congregation without any of their own foolish additions or subtractions. This is a text, by the way, that ought to make every preacher before he gets behind a pulpit fervently praying. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Christ. May the word I speak exactly echo. May I be nothing but a conduit, a courier of the word that you would speak to your people in this place. And may they be given the ears with which to hear, not my word, not the minister's word, but Christ's word. And not only that, it says he's the the one who has these stars, the angels, the messengers, and they're the ones who convey the message that the pastor ministers. But it says that he walks among the seven lampstands that are the churches. And that allows us to understand that when he comes to his word of commendation and then also to his word of condemnation, he's not, as I'm saying, I said earlier, preaching to the choir. You know what that means. You're really not speaking to the people in the pew in front of you, but you're speaking over their head about people out there who have problems of some sort or another, and we're, you know, pretty good people. No, that's not the way Christ speaks to his church. He speaks to them in their need. So he's not whistling in the dark. He's walking among the lampstands. He knows exactly what's going on in the Covenant United Reformed Church, whether it be behind open or closed doors, whether it be in public discussion or in private over coffee in my kitchen. No secrets. That's why his eyes are like blazing fire. It's imagery that reminds you he knows you better than you know yourself. You think you know yourself. No, you don't. But he does. He knows the church in Ephesus like the back of his hand. I guess that's the palm. This is the back of the hand. He knows every nook and cranny, every secret place. He knows you exactly as you are. So now, that should have gotten the attention of the church in Ephesus, as I trust it has yours as well. Listen to his word of commendation. He says, I know your, your works. I'm familiar with where you live. I know the challenges that you're facing the struggles that you're enduring. I know everything about you. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you are not weary in well-doing, but you are a congregation that is energetic, a congregation where people, when they need Someone to work or to help out in the kitchen, in the nursery, in the classroom. Wherever there is need, you're at the ready to come 
to volunteer, the kind of church you'd love to have as a pastor. I know your works, I know your hard labor, your patience, you, you don't work because others are going to be impressed, you don't work because you're successful and effective, you just do it because you know it's the right thing to do. To lend a hand, to employ your gifts in service to Christ and to others who are Christ's in Ephesus, in Covenant, United Reformed Church. I know you're those who cannot bear those who are evil. And I'm sure in the first century it was then as it is now that if you take a stand, if you refuse to be moved, you don't make peace with what is not an acceptable way of behaving in God's church. Some might say you're being self-righteous, you're being unduly strict, you're, being, uh, you're acting the part of a Pharisee, you're a legalist, or some such term of opprobrium will throw, be thrown in your face. Never mind that. They bore up under and were hardworking, patient, even when things went not so well. And I know he says that you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. That's a very interesting commendation. He not only commends them for their hard work, for their readiness to contribute to the life of the congregation, but he also commends them because they tested those who came among them, who claimed to be apostles, messengers, Ministers of the word of Christ to his church. But they were not. I don't know if you remember young people or any of you in the book of Acts when Paul, the apostle, on the occasion of his farewell address to the elders where? Where were they? Ephesians. The Ephesian elders. This church where Paul labored for three years as an apostle. What did he say to them? He said, there will be savage wolves. There will be people who will come among you, presumably in my name, to minister a word that I gave them to minister. And I commend you. Because like the Bereans, you didn't receive it when it didn't measure up. I think that's a really important word of the Lord to the church, then and now. You don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to blush if you have the reputation for testing. We don't just listen to whatever the last thing someone has to say in Christ's name. We don't care if the man thinks he's got it right. And is maybe in his own mind sincere. Sincerity cannot be at the expense of what is true. So the Christ who walks among the churches, who sees and knows exactly what's going on in the consistory room, in the council room, in the classroom, behind the pulpit... He's keenly interested, and he says, Well done, 
Good for you that you're swimming against the tide. That you're not engulfed in assimilating or accommodating or cutting corners or removing rough edges or stripping the gospel of its core. I heard not long ago a minister wrote a little essay on he had been listening in this time of COVID-19 quarantine. Listen to a lot of preaching online. Kind of a dangerous thing because people start watching preachers who are better than their preacher back home. Better than Venom and all the rest put together. They're really good. Not a good thing, by the way. But what did he conclude? He said it was pretty lamentable. And how many churches, calling themselves evangelical churches, the word spoken was not about Christ and His saving power, His cross, His victory over the power of death in His resurrection, His session at the Father's right hand, His rule by His Spirit and Word. It wasn't a gospel-centered, Christ-centered. It was all about if you chuck, you know, you look up and do this and do that, life will go for you swimmingly. And here's the formula. He was, he, I hope he was wrong. But I'm a little afraid he may have hit upon something. And so Christ here reminds the church that there's nothing that he likes to see more than that they're not only energetic, vital, and serviceable in their life together, but they're also people who test and make sure that the word spoken is indeed Christ's word. You've persevered and have patience, have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. They've even opposed the Nicolaitans, and I'll have to be skip over that altogether. But the Nicolaitans were a party like Jezebel in the Old Testament, or a party like Balaam, hired by the king of Moab, to lure the people of God into compromise. Because in Ephesus, a great city, the big business and trade in town was the temple to the goddess Diana, Artemis. And you know the riot broke out. We're told about it in Acts 19 when the gospel first came there because they said, our business will be ruined because the Christians will not bring their sacrifices and gifts to our God who is the chief source of income in this seventh wonder of the world, the temple to the goddess Artemis. And our Lord is saying they wouldn't abide the Nicolaitans because the Nicolaitans were saying, well, we can confess that Caesar is Lord. Even though there is but one who is Lord, we, we can cut a few corners and go to the temple and offer a token sacrifice to the gods. Because otherwise we won't be able to open our business. And we won't prosper. Good for you, says Jesus. You are willing to suffer patiently the loss of prosperity for my name's sake. But now we come to that condemnation I spoke of earlier. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Literally, the language is the love you had at first. And so he calls them to repent. And he says, if you don't 
return to that love you had at first, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You've fallen from where you once were. What's going on here? All these words of commendation, and now this critical word, you've forgotten your first love. Now, commentators are all over the map. Some say it's their love for God. Some say it's their love for Christ. Others say it's their love for each other. I think it's the last, most obviously. They certainly love Christ. At least they guarded his word. The love they had at first was that love for God that expressed itself in love for each other. You know those two go together like Siamese twins. They're inseparable. It's why the Apostle John, the same John who speaks through these words to us in Revelation says, Who can say that he loves God? When they don't love their brother or their sister or their mother, God whom they've not seen, next to those in the pew down the row whom they've seen. You see, the two go together. If they're loved of God, blood-bought brothers and sisters of the one household of faith, The test of your love for Christ is that you love those who are Christ's. The test of your awareness of how gracious He's been toward you, putting up with you and with me, why can't you put up with so-and-so? He forgave you, but you're not going to forgive He loved you and gave up himself for you. So they were orthodox. They were commended for many good things, positive things, for which Christ rightly sings their praises. But lamentably, there was Christ perceived in their midst a growing sense of disinterest Not a great deal of love for one another. You see, truth, orthodoxy, and love for those who are Christ's, those are not two separable things. You can't say, well, I'll take that one, but for this one, never mind. You could be orthodox, but without love, what are you become, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. You become a like someone beating, banging on a drum or a cymbal in the room above you and you're living in the apartment under them. It's obnoxious. Now, this was a letter written to the church in Ephesus. And as I said earlier, by implication has a word to speak as well to us. I'm not here as an interloping pastor on the first Lord's Day after your pastor has left to say, that's true of you. I'm here to say, beware that it not be true of you. Because that would be most lamentable. Work hard. Hold fast to God's Word. Test the spirits. But be a congregation of whom it is said in the community, look at how much those people care about each other. Those are like two inseparable threads. Without one, and it's so 
so lamentable in the church in our time too, as it was in Christ's time, that sometimes churches are known for the one, but not the other, or for the other, and not the other. Christ would have his people pursue by the Spirit love for truth, but also heartfelt love and compassion for each other. So you pray that God would make you, me, all of us that kind of church. And he tells you by way of conclusion, blessed are you, blessed are you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know, of course, that's a reference to the tree of life in Genesis 3.24, from which Adam and all of his posterity were forbidden access when they were put out of paradise, the garden of God. Now, when last have you received a letter from anyone or anything, any institution, where the author of the letter could say to you in truth, if you pay attention to this letter, I promise you that you will know that life everlasting that is symbolized by the tree of life in the paradise of God, you will enjoy blessings without end in this life, but also in the life to come. I'm sure you've received a few letters and not a few emails of late as I have from who knows whom offering me a million dollars if I just provide some information about my bank account and so on. Those are going in the delete trash box as quickly as possible because they're inauthentic. Nothing Christ says in this letter or any of the letters is inauthentic. He, at the tree, we call the cross. He purchased at great cost to himself and by his blood sealed a blood-bought promise that for these people who are in Christ, who listen to His Spirit and give attention to His Word, I promise you, blessed are you, you will enjoy that rich promise of life eternal that is given to all those who have access to the tree of life. May God grant, congregation, that we would hear the Spirit's word as Christ speaks it in this letter to the church in Ephesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray, Father, that we would indeed know the privilege that comes to us as we receive this letter from Christ, that we would listen hear what the Spirit says to us through it, that we would know the joy of access to the tree of life and the paradise of God in this life, the beginnings of eternal life, and most especially in the life to come. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.